the cycle. This is Rachel Bittekoffer, and I have got a great guess straight out of my lecture courses back when I was a professor, when I was the doc. And that guest is Jonathan Weiler. He is the co-author of a book that came out some years ago now uh, called Prius or Pickup, which purports that four questions, just the answer to four questions, can tell us a lot about what your political views are going to be, which party you're going to vote for. It made quite a media splash when it hit. That's how it got on my radar. Um, I was so honored to meet Dr. Wheeler uh, Weiler at. Uh, I was so happy to meet Dr. Weiler at a political science conference and get to have a nice cup of coffee, a cup of Joe. Uh, that cup of Joe choice also part of his book. So with no further ado, I'm going to introduce. Jonathan Weiler, he's the Director for Undergraduate Studies in Global Studies at UNC. I mean, quite the important job, apprising or, or advising all of the future leaders of America there. And uh, with no further ado, dude, how you doing? Good, Rachel. It's nice to chat with you. It's been a while. It has been a while. In fact, when we first hopped on the horn here to get ready to record, uh, we were talking about two years or a little bit more since that day that we met the political science conference when things were just a little chaotic <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know those two years now we've i mean gosh you know i think back to those two years and i feel like a virgin you know i was like the things that i that were scandalizing then are so um you know they're so fa fr frankly uh, uh, unimportant next to a entire coup plot to overthrow the u.s government right <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 does put things in perspective yeah it does it does yeah. so i'm yeah. so excited um to have you here today i know your students absolutely adore you at unc and um like i said this book as a person that spent a lot of my political behavior class on the psycho psychology end of, st of stuff it's just such a great read, and the kids just loved it, and I used to love hearing them reading this book and seeing themselves, whether they were liberals or conservatives, seeing themselves in this analysis. So why don't you do us a favor and describe your thesis and the main, you know, uh, synopsis of the book for the audience here? Yeah, so, uh, and Rachel, so, so, so good to talk to you, and thanks for having me on the I'll just a tiny bit of background. My very close friend and co-author Mark Hetherington and I, really going back 20 years, started having conversations about you know our perception that the American political divide was becoming something far beyond policy differences, disagreements, something much more emotional, visceral, and in the gut. And we just started to try to make sense of what. It, how to how to explain that, how to make sense of that. We wrote a book in 2009, an academic book called Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics. And then in 2018, we wrote a popular version of that book, Prius or Pickup. And what we argued was you could use four questions, and there are four questions about how, there are four parenting questions, four questions about how people think children their children should be raised. These are not questions we made up, they come from their old questions in academia, but we argued that how people answer those four questions could very reliably explain whether they were Democrats or Republicans, uh, 
liberal or conservative, non-authoritarian or authoritarian, or as we said in our most recent book, fixed or fluid. And, it, and once you understood why people were one or the other, you could explain how they sorted themselves out between the Democratic parties and the Republican parties. This is a process that's unfolded over the last generation or so. And that sorting process has now led us, as I said, to a political divide that is not primarily focused on issues, but instead is focused on something much more visceral, visceral and in the gut, fundamental differences in how people view right and wrong, order and hierarchy, and just sort of morality in the world. And, and so that's the that's the basis for our argument. Yeah, and wait till you guys hear how they do this. It's just so great. So before we get into that, though, let's, let's give people a little background. This this then takes something called the Big Five, right? What is the Big Five? Well, so the Big Five is this research and personality studies um, that you know psychologists have been developing for many years and looks at various attributes like uh, openness to experience, uh, conscientiousness, um, and, 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 and by studying how individuals, where they sort of rank on those big five personality traits, we can find out, we can identify what makes people, um, what shapes their worldviews from a political perspective. And, and I think one thing that's really important to note here, Rachel, is that it's not new that people view the world differently from one another in terms of these sort of gut level psychological worldviews. You know, we've always had people who are more sort of open to experience, more comfortable with difference. Right. Other people who are more comfortable with, you know, the tried and the true, what they're familiar with, people who are more like them. That's not new. Okay. What's new, and this is really the critical point, is that those differences over the last generation have now mapped on to partisan differences. Right. And so, for example, 30 years ago, you know, to go back to those four parenting questions, which, you know, we'll call on a spectrum from fluid to fixed, 30 years ago, Democrats were as likely to be fixed as they were to be fluid, more or less. And Republicans were as likely to be fluid as they were to be fixed, more or less. And what's happened over the last 30 years is a sorting process right. where, by and large, the fluid, who used to be Republicans, have all decamped for the Democratic Party, and the fixed, who had been Democrats, have, by and large, decamped to the Republican Party. So now what you have is a Democratic Party largely, not exclusively, but largely comprising fluid or non-authoritarian or liberal folks, and a Republican Party largely comprising fixed authoritarian and conservative folks. And it's that sorting along these very basic personality differences that makes politics, we argue, a now a zero-sum life-or-death yeah, I think it's just fascinating. And in fact, you know, uh, yesterday we had a little bit of a Twitter tussle with Elon Musk putting out a hand-drawn 
you know, um, graphic that purported to show the big shift of Democrats to the left. And, you know, some of us more data conscious people were like, hey, dude, number one, that's a hand drawing. And number two, you're totally backwards, right? It's the exact opposite in terms of polarization and hyperpartisanship in terms of severity between the left and the right. But as Jonathan was just talking about with the sorting, um, you, you have these open people moving to the left and the conscientious folks or the fixed folks in his language, which I'll have him elaborate on in a bit, um, moving to the Republican Party. And that's the same time that in realignment, dealignment literature, you start you know, seeing the conversation about liberals moving to the Democratic Party, Republicans sorting into the um uh, into the conserv uh, conservative sorting into the Republican Party, which is a big um, feature of of our current contemporaneous environment in which you have a lot of distinction. You don't have a lot of heterogeneity of ideology in the two parties, so there's more still on the left. And now what we see is this big rise of authoritarianism. And somebody sent me um, an image of a Pew data that showed how much of a jump in preference for authoritarianism there's been amongst Republican voters. And uh, initially, my, my thought of that was, of course, that it would be coming, you know, from the elite signaling. But actually, thinking about it now, and, and the way that you put the sort process, um, I, you know, it does seem like we had, a, they're responding to the mass public, right? So, you know, Rachel, this is a really good question. One thing we talked a lot about in our first book, especially the, the 2009 book, was there's this, there's this research in political science um, called issue evolution. And the idea right. is that at certain times in history, right, certain issues emerge. And the issues themselves have the power to kind of rearrange the electorate. Okay, And, and race in the 1960s is you know, like the, the, the prime example. And, and the reason that's relevant to what you just said, Rachel, on this question of whether it's elites or masses that are driving this process is what the issue evolution literature says is elites are basically, political elites are entrepreneurs and they are selling, you know, they're selling their product to a, a marketplace yes. that is voters, yes. right? And, and, and they're hunting for issues that they think are going to be most saleable, right? And so when Republican elites in the 1960s, particularly the Nixon campaign, law and order, tough on crime, et cetera, in response to the civil rights era, they happen upon an issue race, which is now has a potency in politics that in some ways it didn't have previously because previously the Democratic Party was no more sympathetic to civil rights than the Republican Party was. Right. But once that changes in the 1960s, Republican elites spot an opening, an opportunity to break up or at least weaken the New Deal coalition, which consists, among other things, of working class white voters. We used to call them blue collar or ethnic white voters. Um, who previously were loyal Democrats, now there's a wedge issue that might be able to attract them. And so uh, what we argued in our book was this process begins as an elite-driven process in that it's elites that really sort of put issues on the agenda, harp on them, and craft their appeals around them. But at a certain point, they cultivate an electorate 
that is really invested in those issues. Yes. And once the electorate's really invested in those issues, then in many ways, it's the electorate that now constrains the elites and forces them to keep, you know, harping on those issues that the elites may have initially said, these are important, but now the mass publics are convinced, you know what, these are the issues we care about, and you better deliver for us on those issues. And, and, and Rachel, I feel like a good example of this, you'll remind me if I'm forgetting the details, wasn't Trump in Georgia earlier this year, and he made a speech where he actually said that people should get vaccinated, and everybody yes. started booing him? Yes, right? yeah. So that's a perfect <laughs> example of what I'm talking about, because the reason the Republican Party is anti-vax to begin with is because of Trump yes, and what he did in 2020. No and doubt. he's created a monster. He has. He's right? made his own little yeah. mini Frankenstein effect, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because exactly. like, like really that's what the Republican Party is dealing with now, right? Like it was convenient yes. for Peter Thiel and the Koch brothers and the Burdocks and all these other people to build a right-wing media ecosystem that they could use to drive opinion and voters to the yes. poll until that shit started to burn out of control. and then it ate them starting in 2010 and that's how you have this internal republican party civil war that we are now on the other side of the slope for it happened it was a thing that started in 2010 peaked out really in 2014 with Cantor's loss then trump's nomination in 2015 Mm -hmm. and was done when donald trump won the general election because that was when the party was like well i guess we're all in on maga (laughs) right putting a ring on that shit because now we have supreme court judges and policy control we can get tax cuts for our billionaire donors so like that moment was the end of the republican civil war and now we're living in a post-civil war republican party and and but i don't want to get off topic i want to ask you something all right you have these these four questions for parents right it's basically parenting questions and you ask them on the scale and and this is a standard scale as you pointed out but you ask them that what's more important independence for kids versus respect for elders right being obedient or being self-reliant okay what's more important a curious child or one that's well behaved right and um you know what's the fourth one i can't remember the fourth one it's think thinking for oneself versus there you go versus good manners that's right thinking for oneself versus you know um getting clear directions or something like that something that allows for ambiguity and in decision making so yeah the these four measures is what um him and his his co-author mark hetherington used to um calculate whether people fell into a fixed worldview or a fluid worldview based on that openness um you know threat you know not being adverse to threat and being open to new experiences or being more uh threat adverse and uh, more you know stability predictable oriented rather than um yep. ambiguity right so all right yeah that's right so you guys use these and i think it, you know, this was always my favorite uh, my students favorite part they would start yelling oh i do that <laughs> so what are some things that are distinct by that liberals and conservatives or fluid and fixed people we should say do so um and i mean i i should say rachel that you know, so the, the title, this is this is by, partly by way of answering your question, the title of 
you know, the popular book is Prius or Pickup. And, you know, in 2022, I guess we'd have to substitute Prius for some electrical vehicle. But, um, but you know, I think what, what that title is trying to capture is a couple of things. One, that, um, you know, the, the, the fluid are more interested in a car that's environmentally conscious. They're not worried that it's like a big tank of a vehicle that's going to protect them in a car crash. Um, you know, that it's, it's, it's made by a foreign manufacturer. Like, you know, those things don't matter to the fluid. They're comfortable with difference. They're comfortable with things that are unfamiliar. They, you know, they they're much more likely, and we've, there is research on this, they're much more likely to be very experimental in terms of their diet, in terms of what they like to eat, in terms of the beers they're interested in trying. Yeah. And so in all those ways, they just have more kind of experimental tastes and they're just more open to new experiences. They like it when they hear people on the speak on the street speaking foreign languages, for example. Ah, I yeah. think that's interesting and cool. Um, they're, they're not they're not upset or unnerved by things that are unfamiliar or seem different to them. And and, so, and they like to live right in the city, right? Yes, yes. They they much prefer to live in cities in big polyglot, culturally diverse communities. Look, and by the way, there's lots of things we can say about these liberals that also, you know, they want their zoning regulations to ensure that, you know, their property values remain high. Yes, and they, yes. And that their schools remain good in the ways they want them to be good. These are not, you know, these are not necessarily um, unproblematic people in terms of the gap between their professed values and how they live their lives. Right. But this really just is more to the question of how at this gut level, they sort of orient themselves to what is a rapidly changing and diversifying world. And on one side, you have people who in general are more comfortable with those changes. On the other side, people who see that as a really dangerous threat. And Rachel, I want to make a, just a comment about that. There's a, there's a question that was asked on polls in 2016. And it was basically, it was a binary choice. It, one, of two, one of two characterizations of your outlook comes closer to, to, to how you feel about the world. And one was, the world is a big, beautiful place, full of interesting people, and it's important that we embrace that diversity and difference. And then the second one was the world is a dangerous place. And basically, you know, we need to hunker down and protect ourselves against all the dangers that are out there. Uh -huh. Okay. Among Hillary voters, it was about 80 to 20 saying that the big, beautiful place comes closer to their view. And among Trump voters, it was exactly the opposite. Right. 80 to 20 said the world is a dangerous place and we need to respond accordingly. And as you well know, in social sciences, those kinds of gaps are just unheard of. Yes. You know, yeah. and, and, and they suggest that we're getting at something really fundamental and foundational 
about how now people are how people are now orienting themselves to politics. It sure does. And you know what? You guys find some really interesting differences. I mean, some of them are kind of, to me, a little predictable, right? This idea that conservatives on, on average would have more kids than liberals, okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, probably connected more to religious you know, re- religiosity than anything. Yes, that's, that's right. right. That's right. Name them more traditional names, even if you control for race, which is notable because there are very distinct naming traditions by race, especially yes. uh, in the African-American community. But so those are, cut for me, as a trained social scientist, might be interesting for more interesting for the audience, but for me, fairly predictable. What I thought was really interesting is there's a cat and a dog divide. Tell me about that. Yes. Well, there there is a cat and a dog divide that uh, liberals in general do prefer cats and conservatives prefer dogs, but not just any dogs. What conservatives really prefer are big dogs, big dogs that will be protective, big dogs that aren't going to be sort of, you know, yippy and running around the house and jumping on the furniture that are going to be really obedient and also are going to do what you need them to do when the time comes. Yeah, you mean dogs that don't tempt people to kick a field goal with them? <laughs> I'm just kidding. No animals were harmed in the in the audio of this podcast. <laughs> no, I'm a big dog person, right? So, like, it's so funny to me because you're right. Everybody I know that's super uber liberal has a cat, dude. Yeah. And then, like, the few yeah. that aren't, they all have these small dogs. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I'm a, I, I myself am a total cat person. Yeah. And my co-author Mark um, has a dog, okay. but the dog is a is a small little dog. Basically. <laughs> yeah, R- rules the household. I don't like <laughs> usual. I'm a total mix of contradictions, right? Because like I like uh-huh. I like the uh-huh. bigger dog. I, <laughs> so it's not just that I yeah. don't like. I'm a dog person over cat, and I like yeah. bigger dogs, right? But, yep. but, yep. but my coffee choices is also predictive. And that's because uh-huh. I have a very, very preferred coffee choice. And that is between Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks, always going to Starbucks, right? Uh-huh. So there's uh-huh. a very liberal, uh, uh, t- talk a little bit about what you learned about coffee, t- um, coffee choices. Yeah, so I mean, you know, that's a, we actually have, we have a chapter... Um, in our book where we, I mean, we just, we made up these two families, um, you know, really to reflect what are these sort of aggregate composite findings about family size, about the relationship between the, the, the two partners in the relationship, who the primary breadwinner would be, what kinds of pets they had. You know, one of the things we noted is that the more fixed family they're going to stop at Dunkin' Donuts on their way to work, whereas the Fluid family is going to stop at Starbucks. And, you know, with all these things, of course, we're not claiming that this is true in 100% of cases, right? But we are saying that in the aggregate, in composite, there are these really strong relationships between these preferences. And I want to say something more about why they're significant in a moment, but these preferences on the one hand and political beliefs on the other hand. And I think, Rachel, this gets to another sort of key part of the puzzle here, which is that, you know, in, in other eras, whatever your food preferences were or your car preferences or your clothing preferences, they didn't tell us anything about people's politics. Right. 
You know, they were they were tastes and preferences just independent of that. And that has changed. And there's a couple of important points to make about the change, both the difference it reflects and where that itself comes from. I mean, Rachel, when I was growing up in New York City in the 1970s, okay, this is New York City, the center of godless liberty. Right? <laughs> yes. It, right? In the 1970s, there, there was no Starbucks. No there, doubt. Do you know, when we went out to eat, and, and it was rare, by the way, that we went out to eat in the 1970s. When we did, we went to Howard Johnson's. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there weren't a lot of choices back then. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so I think one thing that's changed that's really interesting is there's such a greater range of choices and possibilities. Yes, now, that's so that true. Dis- yeah, that's right, so that these, important to, I think that's right, a that dead on, dis- yeah. Yeah, so that these distinctions that we can now make, we just wouldn't have seen them before, yeah. right? And so, and so that relates to the ways in which these identities that we have, these political identities, and you know, Lily Mason, you know, has really talked about this a lot in her work. They are they're social identities, and they encompass politics, yeah. and they encompass what in a previous era would have had nothing to do with politics, except that everything is political now. Because it's like, you know, if, if I if I say to you, okay, I'm going to describe an image and you're just going to, without thinking about it, tell me what's the likely political affiliation of that person, you know, a young woman walking down the street with a yoga mat, you're going to have an immediate reaction to which political tribe right. she likely belongs to, mm-hmm. right? And again, that that's the kind, those are the kinds of associations that for the most part, weren't even possible to make 40 or 50 years ago. And I'm just going to mention a political issue that I think really captures well this kind of, the, what happens when, when choice becomes possible. Nobody, I mean, I mean virtually nobody, before 1969 was advocating for gay rights. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, so, and so that issue wouldn't have divided anybody because there was a consensus on oh yes exactly and same and same with you know really women like treatment of women you didn't have a a liberal and conservative divide it was it was a it was a shared right there so there was no culture war because there was no disagreement about culture (laughs) exactly And, and so now now we live in a world of endless choices preferences, differences. And all of that, I think, has contributed to and reinforced this core worldview difference, which now not only divides us politically, but is reinforced and supercharged by all of our non-political preferences, which, because of the world we're living in now, only reinforce how differently we feel from people on the other side and how alien they seem to us in all of their life choices, not only in their political views. And now every single guest that's listening to this understands why I so desperately wanted to have this conversation with you because it is uh, just it's so compelling. It, it wraps in with all of the institutional and structural change. I think that, you know, this, this, and we've talked, I think I've talked about this more 
in the context of of a like a lack of shared reality, right? Or shared experiences. Like even yeah. when I was, I'm lucky. I'm I'm a tweener. I call myself a tweener. So I spent half my life in the digital internet, cell phone connected world, the modern world, and half of my life in the in the world before, which was very different world. And you would have. Um, you know, even TV uh, variety back then was limited. And so you would have these shared experiences that everybody would see and experience at the same time too, mind you. <laughs> and um, yeah, 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 you know what I mean? And that stuff has gone away, but, and I've always understood that to be a product of choice, right? Now, once you, once you had, um, you know, the modern choice environment, you were not going to have shared space. But I hadn't thought about here. I think it would have happened anyway, but you have to sit there and wonder then how much of it has been artificially, you know, increased or inflamed over the last, especially last 10 years as Republicans have become so adept at at finding these things like Dr. Seuss books. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yep, and yep. politicizing kind of like the non-political space, right? I mean, it didn't used to be that MLB was political or Coke or Disney or whatever, right? <laughs> so or, or or those Keurig, uh, you know, instant coffee. Oh yeah, no doubt, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I was on a show earlier today. And he, uh, I was played some audio from the senator in Alabama, Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, not the good Joe Kennedy, the other one. And he was literally, he said, you know, you can identify wokers, that's what he calls people, wokers, and you can identify them because they're vegetarians <laughs> and they walk into pools. I mean, the other one, the second one, I'm like, huh? <laughs> Walking into pools is a new one to me. Yeah, yeah. I had never heard that distinction before. And I'm a pretty, like, you know, heavy pool user. For me, I will tell you observationally, which is not, of course, the best way to collect data, but observationally seems what determines whether people are going to walk into the pool or not is if they're broken and old like me. Because I used to cannonball (laughs) in there, you know, but now it's like, I got to get in there slow. And it kind of makes me wonder, okay, what happens if I walk into the pool down the stairs, but I eat a slice of pepperoni pizza at the same time? What am I then, you know? <laughs> uh, so, hey, if, if people are interested in your book, where can they find it? Um, so they can find it on Amazon and uh, Houghton Mifflin, which is its original publisher, and pretty much anywhere on the Internet. And it's Prius or Pickup, and the subtitle is how the answers to four simple questions explain America's great divide. Um, it came out in 2018 and we, um, yeah, we, we, we worked hard to make it, uh, actually readable for a non wonky political science audience. Yeah. It's incredibly accessible. And I always tried to give my undergrads accessibility because I don't go in there with, I mean, I maybe the first time I taught, I went in there with, with visions of grandeur. (laughs) And then I quickly realized, Oh no, you know, these kids, you know, I mean, I could give them research journal articles to read, or I could just shoot them. It would probably be kinder, you know? So I love work like yours. They made such great books in my class and it brought, politics to life for students and i just remember all my conservative students gasping oh i drink dunkin donuts <laughs> my, 
and my uh, liberal ones going, yeah, I, I only go to Starbucks. And it, uh, it's such a great, it's such a great way to, to get people thinking too about why our differences are so complex and seemingly intractable and how uh, much disentangling there is to do into those topics. So thanks for joining us yeah. today. Okay, Rachel, my pleasure.